Howdy, everybody. CJ here, your guerrilla scholar warrior, one-man revolution, and renaissance man for the new dark age. Back after a travel-filled several-week hiatus here with another installment of Dangerous History. This is going to be episode 184 of the Dangerous History podcast, DHP Villains, Harry Anslinger. And this was my presentation at the 2019 Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest that I just returned from a few days ago. And boy, did I have a great time. I had a busy June with a lot of travel. First, I had to drive my kids up to my mom's place in North Carolina so that they could be there while my wife and I went to Montana. Then we got back from Montana a day late, thanks to uh, United Airlines and a giant travel screw-up I won't go into detail on here. But we ended up getting home a day late after having spent the night in the Chicago O'Hare Airport. Quite a lot of fun. Then in a hurry, I had to go retrieve my kids from North Carolina, bring them back home to Florida, and then just a day or so after that, blast off for Michigan. So it's been a very busy June. It was great. I'm glad I did both trips, both my personal trip with my wife to Montana, as well as my own trip to Michigan to go to the fest. I'm glad I did them, but man, I'm also kind of relieved that the travel's over and for the rest of the summer, I'm not doing much travel, other than at most the occasional local day trip. But anyway, I had a great time at the fest, as I always do. Got to see a bunch of people I see there every time I go, as well as meet some new folks. Just a great time. And before I transition over to my remarks, I just want to say a giant thank you to everybody who's involved with the organizing and running of the event. And a special thank you to Joe Motard, who was absolutely essential in getting me there and making sure I had shelter, and seeing to some of my food and drink while I was there as well. A big thank you to Lou for his food service running the Assault Kitchen, and to Nick Hazelton, who is acting as his sous chef. Thanks to them, I was well-fed a lot of my meals while I was there. And also thanks to Jason Paradise for being the audio engineer at all the presentations. Now, when you hear my audio of my talk... You'll note that if you're an audiophile that my microphone is distorting a bit, and I take all the blame for that. I had the input volume level of my portable digital recorder adjusted a little too hot for how loud I ended up being. I think what happened there was I was speaking to the mic, setting the levels, and I was speaking in very kind of calm, perhaps too soft sort of a way. And then once I was up there giving my presentation in front of the crowd, I was, you know, belting it out a little bit more. And so the level I had set during testing was a little too hot for how I actually spoke. So anyway, I've got it all adjusted so the volumes are leveled out and you don't have to worry. It's not going to suddenly blast your ears or anything, but you might notice a little bit of distortion. It's certainly not enough to interfere with understanding what I'm saying. So anyway, all that said, oh, and one more thing. In addition to this talk that's going to be a podcast episode, I did have another conversation with Brett Vinat of School Sucks, who was also at the fest. In fact, he was in the little cabin right next to my little cabin. And we had several conversations over the course of the event, including one on-the-record podcast conversation, and look for that to be coming out as a crossover episode on both of our podcast feeds in the very near future. So stay tuned for that. But anyway, without further ado, here is my... DHP Villains Hit Piece on Harry J. Anslinger. 
So one of the challenges here is this uh, is a, a topic, the career of Harry Anslinger, that if I were doing it the normal way from my home studio, would probably end up being around three hours long. So it's been quite a, a struggle for me to figure out how to try to shoehorn this into approximately an hour. So bear with me. Um, but yeah, as, as Penn Jillette would say, and then there's this asshole. So nice guy all around. So I want to start off with a few quotes, aside from this one on the screen, which you can read at your leisure. The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. And I could hear some of you know the source of that one. That's, of course, H.L. Mencken. Now here's a slightly longer quote. No one can predict what may happen after the smoking of the weed. I am reminded of a Los Angeles case in which a boy of 17 killed a policeman. They had been great friends. Patrolling his beat, the officer often stopped to talk to the young fellow, to advise him. But one day the boy surged toward the patrolman with a gun in his hand. There was a blaze of yellowish flame, and the officer fell dead. Why did you kill him? The youth was asked. I don't know, he sobbed. He was good to me. I was high on reefers. Suddenly, I decided to shoot him. In Los Angeles, California, a youth was walking along a downtown street after inhaling a marijuana cigarette. <laughs> Suddenly, for no reason, he decided that someone had threatened to kill him and that his life at that very moment was in danger. Wildly, he looked about him. The only person in sight was an aged boot black. Drug-crazed nerve centers conjured the innocent old shoeshiner into a destroying monster. Mad with fright, the addict hurried home to his room and got a gun. He killed the old man and then later babbled his grief over what had been wanton, uncontrolled murder. I thought someone was after me, he said. That's the only reason I did it. I had never seen the old fellow before. Something just told me to kill him. That's marijuana. And that's Harry Anslinger in one of the many articles he wrote about the marijuana menace in the mid-30s. This one is one of the most famous. It was entitled Marijuana Assassin of Youth, and it was published in July of 1937 in the American Magazine, um, not long at all before the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act was passed. One more quote before we jump into the, the narrative of Anslinger's career. When the Russians land on the moon... The first man they meet will be Anslinger, searching for narcotics. <laughs> and that's none other than Charles Lucky Luciano in 1962. So who was Harry Anslinger? Well, probably a lot of you have at least some idea of who he was. Uh, he lived from 1892 to 1975. So... 
you know, the, we know the phrase, only the good die young, and apparently the inverse of that statement is also true. And as other examples, I would point to members of the Bush family, members of the Rockefeller family, and also the house of saxe coburg Gotha, better known as the House of Windsor. And Anslinger was the commissioner, the head guy, at the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from its beginning in 1930 until his mandatory retirement at age 70 in 1962. And while he's by no means the only person who's responsible, he, I think, is pretty clearly the single most important individual in establishing the U.S. government's policies toward drugs in the 20th century. He served under five presidents from Herbert Hoover through JFK. That would be two Republicans and three Democrats. He was himself a Republican and yet managed to keep his job under more Democrats than Republicans during his tenure. His tenure and his influence at the federal level in law enforcement is only exceeded by J. Edgar Hoover himself, who served even longer, and at the FBI, which at the time had significantly more power and resources than the Federal Narcotics Bureau did. Now, during most of his tenure, the Narcotics Bureau rarely had more than 250 field agents at any given time, and yet he was a very skillful, Anslinger, a very skillful um, political and bureaucratic operative. He was really good at playing the Washington game, and he was able not only to keep his job under all these different presidents of different parties, but he was able to frequently get significant increases in his bureau's power and budget and resources and manpower and all that stuff. And so he was very good at playing kind of special interest politics. He was also very good at the game of crisis and Leviathan, even when you have to basically invent a crisis. He, of course, was the main force behind the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, which began the federal government's war on weed, as well as other important drug laws during the mid-20th century, like the 1951 Boggs Act and the 1956 Narcotics Control Act, both of which instituted progressively harsher penalties on drug offenses, including mandatory minimum sentences. Anslinger was, to some degree, an opportunist. I mean, he was a very skillful, pragmatic political infighter, but he also seems to have been an ideologue. And that's a very dangerous combination. Someone who's both a real ideologue, but also practically skillful and willing to kind of compromise from time to time when it's expedient. That's a really dangerous operator. And his ideology seems to have been a kind of right-wing political stew that included things like racism and xenophobia, as well as staunch anti-communism and, you know, a giant desire to have a say in what other people do or do not put into their own bodies, which obviously is the hallmark of a quote-unquote free country, is a population that doesn't get to be the final arbiter of what does or does not go into their own body. And he was happy to use giant doses of paranoia and hysteria whenever it was expedient to do so, even when there's evidence to show that he may have actually known better. Anslinger also had important connections to the world of intelligence, going back to the World War I era long before he ever worked on narcotics and continuing throughout his entire tenure as a narcotics enforcer, including various ties and collaborations with the OSS during World War II, 
and the CIA in the early Cold War years. So who was this guy? Well, he was the son of a Swiss barber who immigrated to the United States, Anslinger's father, immigrated to the United States along with his wife in the 1880s in order to avoid military service back home, which is, you know, one of the best motivations I could think of for immigrating. They eventually settled in Altoona, Pennsylvania, where in 1892, young Harry was born the eighth of nine children. At the end of eighth grade, Anslinger began working, initially part-time, still going to school, for the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, where his father also was working at the time. And Anslinger never actually officially completed a high school diploma, but nonetheless, a bit later on, was able to take some college courses and um, even get an associate's degree, I believe, from Penn State. All the while continuing to work for the railroad company. Eventually, Anslinger began to work for the railroad company's intelligence department. Yes, every railroad company needs one of those. That's definitely, like once you've got the engineers, that's the next department you want to set up. And in that job, basically what he was doing was kind of private detective type work for the company, sometimes dealing with labor issues and things like that, and also doing things like, for example, he once saved the company from a lawsuit by proving that there was a guy who was going to sue the railroad because his wife had been killed by a train and he wanted to claim negligence, and Anslinger was actually able to prove that um, it wasn't the railroad company's fault and thus saved the company a potentially uh, troublesome lawsuit. And he started to already get turned in some directions that he would later pursue in his, in his career working for the U.S. government. He claimed that two early experiences kind of put him on the path towards becoming a, uh, a, a crime fighter. One was when he was very young, I think not even yet working for the railroad at all, he told a story on several occasions that a neighbor of his um, a lady neighbor of his had a horrible opium addiction and that he, um, you know, heard her screaming and all that when she couldn't get enough of her drug and all that. And so that was supposedly part of what made him think of, you know, drugs bad. And then another thing that happened while he was working for the railroad's intelligence department was he had a run-in with something he referred to at the time as the black hand, which basically he described like the Italian mafia. Um, he had an incident where, and, and this is all his telling of it, so who knows how much of it's factually accurate or not, but when he was you know, a young guy still in his 20s working for the railroad, he found an Italian railroad worker who, who was an employee of the company horribly beaten, and um, the guy wouldn't tell him what had happened, and eventually he got out of him that you know, some local Italian gangster-type guy had beaten him within an inch of his life for not paying protection racket money. And Anslinger claimed that he tracked down this, this gangster who was supposedly nicknamed Big Mouth Sam. That's maybe not the best nickname for a gangster, unless it was literal, right? And, and Anslinger claimed that he confronted this gangster and told him, don't ever mess with any of my railroad workers again or I'll kill you myself. And that was the beginning of his um, being obsessed with organized crime in general and the mafia in particular. And one thing that's kind of interesting that I may mention a little bit later on is that Anslinger was the first high-level federal law enforcement official to actually admit that things like the mafia existed and try to go after them during a time where some of you may know J. Edgar Hoover, even though he knew those things were real, 
was constantly saying in public and on the record, oh, there's no such thing as the mafia, that's a myth, blah, 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 blah. Anslinger was actually saying the opposite. So in 1916, Anslinger was, um, ended up doing a little bit of work for law enforcement. One of his bosses was made the head of the Pennsylvania State Police, and he brought Anslinger with him to sort of act as one of his right-hand men. So here's Anslinger, still in his early 20s, helping to kind of organize and run a large police force with, I think, a couple thousand employees. So another formative experience. When the U.S. got into World War I in 1917, Anslinger was 25 years old and tried to join the Army but was turned down because due to a childhood injury, he was blind in one eye and it wouldn't take him. So instead, he ended up working for the Ordnance Department of the War Industries Board. In 1918, when the war was winding down, he turned down a lucrative job offer from a car company in order to go work for the government instead in another capacity. Right there, he had the option to do the honorable thing and go into the private sector. Instead, he went to work for the State Department, who were happy to hire him because he was fluent in German. By the way, over the course of his life, he became fluent in, I believe, five or six different languages. So very, very you know, smart guy, for sure which, again, just makes him all the more dangerous. They sent him initially to Holland, where he also learned Dutch pretty quickly. I guess it helps that it's, you know, not that different from German, from what I gather. And in his State Department job, he began to gather in intelligence. There was no OSS or CIA back then, and so intelligence was kind of, you know, little offices here and there within various departments. You know, there was Army intelligence, there was the Office of Naval Intelligence, of course, Um, And the State Department also did some intelligence stuff. And so Anslinger was involved with a lot of that. He would kind of be sent to even just informal, like, parties and gatherings and events. And because he was multilingual, he would just sort of innocuously kind of gray man, just sort of, you know, hang around and chit-chat. And, you know, his job was basically to keep his ears open for anyone slipping anything that, that, you know, that they shouldn't and, and then report back. So according to Anslinger, he actually got an important mission towards the end of World War I, According to him, and I'm not sure how much of this is true or not, this is his, his story. According to him, as the war was ending, the Wilson administration decided they actually didn't want the Kaiser to abdicate. Now, I'm not sure if this is true or not. I, I've always understood that Wilson kind of as the whole, you know, making the world democratic ideology that he had, that he, he was actually insistent on regime change in Germany, but I don't know if they, you know, had second thoughts as the war was actually ending or not. But supposedly... Anslinger was given the job of getting the message to the Kaiser that President Wilson actually wants you to stay as head of the German government. Um, and Anslinger says he delivered the message to one of the Kaiser's you know, closest buddies, but obviously nothing came of that. The Kaiser still abdicated. So whether the Kaiser ever actually got the message or, or what, who knows. But anyway, after the war, Anslinger continued to work for the State Department in Germany until 1923. Then he was transferred to Venezuela for a number of years. He hated that for a variety of reasons. And some of his comments about why Venezuela sucks are understandable, like, you know, the weather and whatever. As a Florida man, I can sympathize. In the summer, it's not fun. But, you know, there was also a fair amount of racism in some of his comments of why Venezuela is no fun, you know. So there's that, too. Uh, Then, in 1926, he was transferred still working for the State Department, and sent to the Bahamas. And his job there evolved into trying to get the British authorities in the Bahamas to do more to try to crack down on rum runners who were going from the Bahamas to the United States, to places like Florida, to cash in on prohibition, right? 
And he actually eventually participated in a meeting in London that resulted in the British authorities agreeing to actually take more serious actions to try to prevent rum running to the United States. There's obviously, you know, prohibitions on the books by this time. So he impressed a lot of people in the U.S. government by getting the British to agree to this. And the British actually followed through on the agreement and started to really try to prevent rum running more. So great guy, Anslinger. Sometime in the early 20s, I couldn't nail down the exact year, Anslinger married a woman named Martha Dennings. Now this is important because she was a niece of a famous guy many of you have probably heard of, a guy named Andrew Mellon. Not only was Andrew Mellon, you know, super wealthy businessman and all that, but in the 1920s, he was the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. If you don't know, the Prohibition Department was in the Treasury Department. So, based on his success in dealing with the British, he was kind of asked by, uh, sorry, Anslinger was asked by Mellon to kind of come do a little bit of temporary work to try to get other countries to make promises to crack down harder on, on rum running and you know, stuff to the United States. So Anslinger took the job, and he managed to negotiate agreements like this with Canada, France, and Cuba. His transfer from the State Department to the Treasury Department was supposed to be temporary, but it just never stopped. He just kind of worked for the Treasury from then on. So after he finished negotiating these international agreements, he was then put in charge of setting up a division of foreign control within the Prohibition Bureau. And once again, his work would also include dabbling in the clandestine and intelligent sorts of worlds. In 1929, Anslinger was promoted to assistant commissioner of prohibition and was placed in charge of something that was called the Narcotics Control Board. This was the main anti-narcotics department within the U.S. So you've got the Treasury Department, the Prohibition you know, Department is, is under that, and then this Narcotics Control Board is like a subunit of that that he's now in charge of. So he was really kind of lucky because by then we're in the latter years of alcohol prohibition, and he's getting shifted from being dealing with alcohol to dealing with narcotics, which that's going to be the next big thing. Once alcohol gets relegalized, then they're just going to, you know, in no time flat, start shifting more and more of things into, into narcotics. So he was like the right man in the right spot in kind of the mid-30s when that change would happen. At the time, from what we can tell, Anslinger still believed in alcohol prohibition as a worthwhile thing, but he thought it needed some tweaks, some reforms, largely in the form of much, much stricter enforcement. That was the problem with alcohol prohibition. They just weren't trying hard enough. He even published an essay that included his proposals to make alcohol prohibition great again, which included a whole bunch of ideas, like having the U.S. Navy get more involved in alcohol prohibition enforcement. And let's have stricter penalties for violators, including mandatory minimum sentences. In other words, the exact framework that he would bring, the exact mindset he would bring to, to uh, narcotics for you know, over three decades, he was already saying in the latter days of Prohibition, like, oh yeah, if we just do this with alcohol Prohibition, it'd work all right. So in, um, in 1930, Congress passed and President Herbert Hoover signed a bill to create a separate Bureau of Narcotics within the Treasury Department. So now there's going to be two separate bureaus, one dealing with alcohol Prohibition, at least for the next few years till it goes away, and then one dealing with narcotics. And initially, 
Secretary Mellon appointed Anslinger as the acting commissioner of this new Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or FBN. Um, but then, and, and it was almost kind of assumed there were some other candidates to get the job as commissioner, and it was almost just kind of assumed, yeah, he'll, he'll hold the place, and then the president will appoint a, a permanent commissioner. But what happened was the, the main frontrunner to have that job was taken out by some scandals that surfaced. And so politically, he, he was kind of out of the running. And then lots of important friends and supporters that Anslinger had in various business, political, and activist worlds started to lobby really strongly to get Anslinger made just the full commissioner of the Narcotics Bureau. And so he was appointed and then confirmed by the Senate in December of 1930. He was only 38 years old, and he's head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and he's going to hold that job for the next 32 years. In its first full year of operation, which is 1931, the Bureau had only 271 agents, which seems, you know, pretty quaint. I think um, the math is that if they were, for example, going to try to keep narcotics from reaching the United States from foreign sources, I believe each of those agents would have to patrol 10,000 miles of border or coastline, which, you know, seems doable. They also had 426 office workers and a budget of $1.7 million, which, I mean, the Pentagon spends that today in like .07 seconds, but back in the early 30s, I guess you're still kind of on the gold standard and the dollar still means something a little bit, and you know. But still, it was not a big agency. It was, you know, much smaller than the FBI and all that. Now, he was determined to take an enforcement supply-side approach against narcotics, and he initially focused on opium, which, of course, is you know, all produced outside the United States, and he's focusing on international organized drug running. More importantly, during his first year as director of the Bureau of Narcotics, he's learning very quickly how to play the game. This is how an historian named John McWilliams, who's the author of the only really kind of serious scholarly academic history book that I've been able to find on Harry Anslinger, a book called The Protectors, Harry J. Anslinger and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. This is how McWilliams describes Anslinger's first decade heading the FBN, you know, in the 1930s. He says that Anslinger, quote, cultivated and sustained solid political ties with key members of both parties and gained the support of dozens of interest groups and lobbies making himself virtually immune to opposition within or outside the federal government. In a short period, Anslinger developed a keen understanding of Washington politics and the importance of establishing influential connections. He demonstrated his mettle and ability to survive crisis situations on several occasions because of this support system. The combination of politics, existing social conditions, and Anslinger's personality resulted in the enactment of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, the federal legislation that ultimately opened the door for the government's and Anslinger's policy of exceedingly severe penalties for drug violations over the next 50 years. End quote. Of course, just a few years into his tenure running the FBN, and Anslinger, by the way, I should mention, I, I may have before, he was a Republican. I mean, obviously had been appointed and confirmed by a Republican president and a Republican Senate um, in 1930. But of course, 1932, FDR and the Democrats win a landslide. And 
you know, you might expect this guy to be quickly replaced, as were, you know, most of the, the heads of the various government departments. But um, he's going to hang on. And interestingly, one of the things he did during that period to kind of keep his name in the press and in the popular mind and all that was he went on a brief crusade against doping of racehorses by their trainers. And so all of a sudden, he's like talking about that and bringing that up and calling for more, you know, investigations into that and getting his friends and allies in the press, such as the Hearst, pa- such as the Hearst Papers, but really much of the mainstream press was typically on his side, um, getting them to suddenly raise awareness about the doping of horses, even though, by all evidence, this was never a particularly widespread problem. I mean, it happened, but there's no, there's no reason to believe it was really a a frequent thing. Uh, in fact, racehorse owners usually didn't want their trainers to dope the horses because even though it might help them win a race tomorrow, it will make the horse's career a lot shorter in the long run. And if you've invested a ton of money in an expensive racehorse, you're thinking long term. So there's incentive to not dope your racehorses most of the time. But anyway, it is kind of interesting that he only harped on the racehorse doping problem from 1933 to 1934. And he never brought it up ever again after that. And he had also never brought it up ever before. It's almost like he was just trying to get some media attention to help him weather the FDR landslide. Now, on the subject of marijuana, up until the 1930s, marijuana was virtually unknown in most of the United States, outside of the Southwest. In the Southwest, it was generally um, associated with Mexicans and with all sorts of negative stereotypes pertaining to them. But most of the American public before the 1930s just didn't know or think much of marijuana hardly at all. New Orleans was the first place outside of the Southwest to start seeing marijuana as a problem, and various city leaders began to produce papers and statements and things claiming there's a growing menace in New Orleans, and this started around 1931. And then marijuana started from New Orleans, apparently kind of following the Mississippi Valley northward, not coincidentally, jazz music is doing the exact same thing, spreading from, from, um, from New Orleans up the Mississippi Valley into various places in the north. Now, Anslinger suddenly starts to take notice in the mid-1930s of marijuana, a drug that even he had previously been on record as saying he was not very concerned about and didn't think was a problem. Up till the mid-30s, he was all about the opium. But all of a sudden, marijuana, yeah, this is a menace. I have to do something. Now, as far as the scientific and medical literature at the time, there was no real solid evidence that would be considered like real scientific evidence that marijuana really was that dangerous or that its effects were really that problematic. And you could find plenty of doctors who would say the opposite. And, you know, you could, you could fish around and find some, some who, would, who would say, oh, yeah, it's really dangerous or whatever. But a lot of them were like, no, nah, it's really not that big of a deal. But Anslinger simply chose to listen only to the doctors and scientists who said what he already wanted to hear and to either just ignore or dismiss and discredit those who said the opposite, who said, oh yeah, marijuana is not that bad of a thing. So in speeches and articles that he wrote and so forth, Anslinger suddenly is sounding hysterical over the dangers of killer weed. 
For example, in 1937, he wrote that article I mentioned near the beginning of the presentation, and he made lots of other hysterical and, and sensationalist articles and um, you know, statements even to Congress and so forth and in the press in the mid-30s. It was a real hysteria bandwagon, and once Anslinger kind of got it rolling, many in the press just started on their own, generating all these hysterical stories and so on. Real bandwagon effect, a real kind of you know, witch-hunting hysteria sort of atmosphere in a lot of ways. Now, most of these articles about, you know, particular criminal incidents and whatever that supposedly had been caused by the pot, most of them would eventually be, like, completely disproven. But most of them wouldn't be fully disproven until after the hysteria had already achieved its goal of passing legislation. And also, after, in the minds of, like, kind of mainstream, regular Americans... Marijuana had already been successfully demonized. It's sort of like the classic thing, you know, the, the, the newspaper prints something horrible about you on the front page that's false, and when it later is disproven, it's on, you know, page 47Q, right below the sexual classified ads, that they go like, oh yeah, remember this guy we said was a pedophile or whatever? Yeah, he's actually fine. And by that time, it's like the damage is done, right? But it's really um, amazing. Even Popular Science Magazine jumped on board with an anti-marijuana article in 1937. And um, there's something called the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. I don't know if it's even still done. Probably not. It's basically like the Stone Age version of a search engine. And um, one, one researcher whose work I looked at in preparing for this looked at the uh, Reader's Guide to periodical, periodical Literature for articles published in major popular press about marijuana. And there's a really interesting pattern. From mid-1925 to mid-1935, a, a period of a decade, there were zero articles in popular publications on marijuana at all. Then in the two-year span from mid-1935 to mid-1937, there were four. Then... From mid-1937, when Congress was starting to debate legislation, till mid-1939, there were 17. But of course, legislation was passed, um, you know, in the summer of 1937. So then, um, in the following years, well, from, from July of 1939 to June of 1941, there were only four articles about marijuana published. And then, from mid-1941 to mid-1943, there were only one. And from that point on, most, most two-year spans, there's like zero or like one or two. So there's obviously this brief, acute witch hunt period where all of a sudden there's, there's a little hysteria bandwagon going. So he, uh, Anslinger, is constantly saying at the time in, in the kind of 35, 36, 37 period that marijuana is more dangerous than opium. And the reason, he said, was because opium's effects were consistent and predictable, whereas marijuana's were very, very unpredictable, and a certain percentage, he never really specified how many, he never actually said a majority, but some significant percentage of people who use marijuana, he said, will be prone to fits of violence, sometimes even including homicidal violence, which... I mean, we all know to be true, right? Just anecdotally, I mean, I'm sure none of us have ever tried the drug, right? Because we all know it's bad. We've, we've heard Anslinger. But you, you may have been around someone else using it at some point in time. And I'm sure you've probably noticed if there's one drug that you associate with 
aggression, belligerence, violence, and, and uh, you know, all that stuff, it's definitely weed. Like, oh, that's the one. So he did actually, on occasion, use the word common, though, to describe marijuana making you violent. He did say it was a common thing. Not everybody will be violent, but, a, but a, it's a common occurrence. He, he really cast the struggle in these Manichaean good versus evil terms as marijuana. You know, it's everything that's good about America and mom and apple pie and kind of implying like sort of, you know, white, Protestant, middle class and upper class, you know, all, the, all that good stuff. Um, versus the evil weed and those horrible decadent jazz musicians and those black and brown people and, you know, all those countercultural types and whatever. He used terms like loco weed and the killer drug, to refer to marijuana. He made statements about all this stuff all over the place in the run-up to the the Marijuana Tax Act to women's organizations, to temperance groups, to church groups, and to Congress. He began collecting these little one-to-two-sentence summary descriptions of crimes supposedly caused by marijuana, and there was a noteworthy racial element in a lot of these little you know, Anslinger's little summaries of these crimes. Um, let me give you an example. And some of these crimes would be violent, and some of them would be nonviolent, and some of them would be things that today most people wouldn't even consider crimes or anything like that. But here's, here's an interesting example. Quote, Colored students at University of Minnesota partying with female students. Parentheses, white. Smoking! and getting their sympathy with stories of racial persecution. Result? Pregnancy. End quote. Yes. Yes. Nothing seduces women like talking about your racial persecution. Whatever works. A Colorado newspaper editor wrote the following to Anslinger in 1936 in a letter, quote, I wish I could show you what a small marijuana cigarette does to one of our degenerate Spanish-speaking residents. That's why our problem is so great. The greatest percentage of our population is composed of Spanish-speaking persons, most of whom are low mentally because of social and racial conditions, end quote. And there's, you know, nothing but evidence that Anslinger would have agreed wholeheartedly with these sorts of sentiments. Anslinger's favorite supposedly marijuana-caused violent crime story was that of a Florida man. Right, so we all know you don't blame the crime on marijuana. In that case, you blame it on being from Florida. Like, but anyway, there was a Florida man named uh, Victor Lakata, who I believe was, you know, some sort of Hispanic ancestry, so that always, always uh, doesn't help you in Anslinger's book, who had supposedly murdered his whole family, I believe with an axe, because he was on the pot. And Anslinger's little description of this in his files summarized the Lakata case like this, quote, A 21-year-old boy in Florida killed his parents, two brothers, and a sister while under the influence of a marijuana dream, which he later described to law enforcement officials, he told rambling stories of being attacked in his bedroom 
by his uncle, a strange woman, and two men and two women, whom he said hacked off his arms and otherwise mutilated him. Again, we've all encountered people under the influence of marijuana who mistakenly, yeah, that, that's, you pay extra for that one. Um, we've, all, we've all seen someone, right, who believes that their relatives are murdering them because the DHC is just so powerful. Later in the dream, this is continuing with the account, Lakata saw real blood dripping from an axe, end quote. And this was his favorite story out of all these little stories he collected. He frequently told this one in articles, in congressional testimony, as proof of marijuana's dangers. By the way, later, after the legislation had been passed, it was actually proven by someone else who looked into this independently that Lakata had actually been suffering from severe mental illness for a long time before he killed his family. Imagine that. The doctors and scientists who challenged Anslinger's claims about all this were either ignored or dismissed. There was a doctor named Michael Ball from Pennsylvania who wrote to Anslinger directly in 1937, point by point questioning virtually all of his claims about marijuana, and Anslinger wasn't swayed at all by this, and he wrote back to the doctor, quote, The marijuana evil can no longer be temporized with and must be subjected to the same rigid method of control as traffic in other dangerous drugs. End quote. Now, from 1931 to 37, the FBN's budget was gradually cut from year to year just because of the fiscal strains of the Depression. And Anslinger actually had to lay off some of his agents, and the remaining ones had to cut their expenses and all this. And then, in the spring of 1937, the Treasury Department began to work on federal marijuana legislation. And Anslinger, of course, is the point man on this. The bill was introduced in the House in April of 1937, and historian John McWilliams describes its main characteristics as follows, quote, It required that all manufacturers, importers, dealers, and practitioners register and pay a special occupational tax. Next, it mandated that all transactions be accomplished through written order forms. Finally, it imposed, on, uh, it imposed a tax on all transfers in the amount of $1 an ounce for transfer to unregistered persons, The most significant difference between the proposed Marijuana Tax Act and the Harrison Act, which is the previous big narcotics legislation that did not deal with marijuana, basically dealt with things like opium, was a prohibitive tax for transfer to registered, $1 an ounce, and unregistered, $100 an ounce persons. Now, this marijuana law, where you're basically using a tax to effect a ban What they used as their model for this legislation was the National Firearms Act of 1934, which used the same strategy to try to virtually ban various types of firearms and accessories without banning them outright, because then you open yourself to potential legal and constitutional questions and whatever. So instead, you use the prohibitive tax strategy. So, I mean, if you don't know, it's kind of self-explanatory, but a prohibitive tax is a tax that's not really about raising revenue. It's a tax that's done in such a way as to make something virtually banned, right? So, the House Ways and Means Committee held five days of hearings. Anslinger was their star witness. He testified second. And, of course, he repeated all of his usual scary stories about marijuana making you a homicidal maniac, and especially if you're black or brown and all these sorts of things. Um, It's very clear, if you take a quick skim at some of the the records of the the testimony and all that, that the congressmen who are conducting the hearings have no idea 
what marijuana even is or anything about it. Like their questions just, you know, that you can, you can see that a mile off. And so they are completely just clay in Anslinger's hands as he's telling them all this. And of course, he's got the authority of, ah, I'm, I've been the Narcotics Bureau Commissioner for seven years. I'm an authority figure. So the only critical witness to testify in this was an AMA doctor who was also an attorney who criticized the bill and the hearings on a whole host of grounds I won't get into here. And the committee was basically super hostile to him right away. And his testimony very quickly switched from him raising his objections to the committee attacking him from every direction, including questioning his credentials and even basically accusing him of lying about a number of things. In June, the bill went to the whole House, and after a whole half hour of debate that was really hardly any debate at all, it was passed by unanimous consent. Senate committee hearings were basically a replay for practical purposes. Um, that same AMA doctor attorney guy refused to testify in the Senate hearings because he was like, why am I going to put myself through that for no reason? I know what they're going to do. And by early August, the bill had been passed by both houses and signed into law by the great FDR. Within a few years, also, every state who had not done so already, and a bunch already had, um, had passed state-level, very stringent marijuana laws as well. And Anslinger, of course, had been nudging them on this the whole time. And with very strict penalties, many of the state laws passed during this time carried penalties for marijuana that were comparable to the same state's penalties for things like murder and rape. In October of 1937, a U.S. judge in Denver, ironically Denver, given recent history there, a U.S. judge in Denver sentenced a 58-year-old man named Samuel Caldwell for having sold some marijuana. He was sentenced to a $1,000 fine, which, you know, today 1000 bucks ain't nothing, but in the 1930s, $1,000 is like multiple cars. He was sentenced to a $1,000 fine and four years in prison for this offense. He was the first person to be prosecuted and convicted under the federal marijuana laws. He, of course, was a dealer. His customer was also busted and uh, sentenced, I believe, to a slightly lighter sentence. But yeah. And the judge in this case made a very self-righteous, you know, closing statement or whatever, where he's basically like, yeah, we have to crack down and make an example of people like you and you're an enemy of civilization and all that sort of stuff. And while Anslinger, once the act was passed and enforcement began, he continued to speak about the dangers of marijuana. He did noticeably back off on emphasizing it all the time. And he noticeably backed off on some of his most extreme claims about its dangers and all that. Despite a a few scandals in the 1930s and despite being a Republican in a time of democratic political dominance, Anslinger managed to hang on to his job throughout the 1930s. One of his biggest supporters was uh, the big pharmaceutical companies. And a big part of this was that Anslinger, you know, was in charge of licensing companies to deal with legal opium for medical use. And he kept the number of companies who got these licenses very, very small. And so you can see, right, why, why those companies would love it, because it's an anti-competitive, cartelizing thing, right? If only a few companies can make opiate medications... There goes your profit margin, right? Through the roof. So they, they loved him, and they were happy to help him and, and, you know, defend him. In the late 1930s and early 40s, one heroic congressman, a Democrat from Washington State named John Coffey, as far as I could tell in my research, not the Green Mile guy, 
led a brief one-man crusade of trying to reform America's drug laws in a more, you know, humane direction and trying to replace the paradigm at least with something more like medical treatment rather than, than law enforcement, but he basically got nowhere with his efforts. By 1935 into the late 30s, Anslinger saw World War II coming on the horizon, and he got the Treasury to start purchasing up opium because he realized the war would disrupt the international opium trade and all that, and that the war itself would use up lots of opium for, for you know, medical usage for painkillers. And so between 1935 and 1940, Anslinger got the Treasury Department to purchase 300 tons of opium stockpiles which basically meant that the United States Treasury had cornered the opium market for the World War II years. Now, like I said, at a time when J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were turning a blind eye to the mafia, Anslinger and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics were actually going after them, and the FBN was a key part of several high-profile mafia busts before and right after World War II, including that of Lucky Luciano whom the Federal Narcotics Bureau investigated for a while before um, his arrest in the late 30s. Um, Luciano, of course, was ultimately convicted on 62 counts of forced uh, forced prostitution, even though they had plenty of evidence to also bust him on narcotics charges. But for whatever reason, I think they figured, well, we got him on this, and we can really throw him in jail for that, and that's good enough, and why even go through the work of, of trotting out the other stuff? He was sentenced to 50 years in prison, And, of course, uh, some of you may know who've listened to an episode I did a while ago of my show. During World War II, Luciano was one of several key mobsters who collaborated with the Office of Naval Intelligence in what was kind of informally named Operation Underworld, where the U.S. government made an alliance with the mafia to get their help on various aspects related to World War II. Luciano, of course, was uh, let out of prison in 1945, even though he'd served less than a decade of his 50-year sentence. I'm sure his work with ONI had zero bearing on that whatsoever. It's just coincidence. He was deported, though. His citizenship was revoked, and he was booted back to um, Italy. In the late 40s, he popped up in Cuba, hanging out with, uh, you know, Meyer Lansky and all of his old buddies there. Uh, And Anslinger, who had agents in many countries, including Cuba, Uh, in the pre-Castro days, uh, Anslinger basically started harassing Luciano in uh, Cuba and eventually got America's sock puppet government in Cuba to boot Luciano out of Cuba, boot him back to Italy, and then Anslinger wasn't done. When um, Luciano got back to Italy, Anslinger had the Italian government revoke his visa and his passport, like everything, so that he was basically like under house arrest in, in Italy at that point. So... Um, in the late 40s, really starting even during World War II, but into the late 40s, Anslinger had the Federal Bureau of Narcotics uh, target various prominent jazz musicians. Um, among the famous ones who were busted by them, Gene Kruppa was uh, busted on a drug-related charge. And of course, he had multiple times arrested and harassed and everything uh, the jazz singer Billie Holiday. This is a story told in, in more detail in the book Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, if you've ever read that or heard him when he's been on like Joe Rogan's podcast or whatever. You can, you know, I won't, I won't go through that story here because of time. He also surveilled and harassed and busted some Hollywood people during that time, including, for example, he busted Robert Mitchum, Robert Mitchum, I believe, for marijuana-related charges in the late 40s. Uh, Although Anslinger always was a little bit more soft-touch dealing with Hollywood than he was dealing with, say, jazz musicians. You know, he always was a little bit bit lighter touch. 
But anyway, he was also active in, in meddling with the Hollywood film industry, not nearly as much as, you know, Hoover or the military, uh, J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI or the U.S. military were doing at the time. But still, he, he messed around with Hollywood a bit. Um, he got them to censor some films that depicted drug use, even films that depicted drug use negatively and that were basically anti-drug propaganda films. Anslinger said, uh, well, we don't want to show people how these things work because they might get the idea that they want to try them. Which actually does kind of make sense. If you've ever looked into like what happened, say, with the D.A.R.E. program in the 80s, they'd go into these schools where like 99% of like, you know, if you're in like a white suburban middle class school, they, most of these kids have never heard of these drugs. And you go in and you're like, this one's a real dangerous one, and here's how you use it, and don't do this one. And then, of course, within a few years, all the kids are like up to their eyeballs in those drugs, right? I mean, it's basically like a commercial for them, right? Yes. That's the spirit. <laughs> so um, in the late 1930s and into the early 1940s, there was a major study commissioned by New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, which was like a real legit serious study, trying to figure out what marijuana's effects really were and how much of a danger it actually was, and approaching it from a neutral scientific perspective. It's mostly being run by actual scientists and people like that. I know. And believe it or not, they came to the conclusion that like, virtually all of the horrible claims about marijuana that had been made in the 30s were pretty much entirely false. And basically what happened was that Anslinger and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics harshly attacked the study and everyone associated with it, and the mainstream media did their part by completely ignoring the study across the board. So it had no practical effect. During the war years, Anslinger became very concerned with possible drug use in the military, even though it was never a big problem in the World War II era. By the way, during the lead-up to World War II, and then continuing during the war years, he began uh, hatching a conspiracy theory claiming that the Japanese government was deliberately sending opium into Western countries in order to weaken them. As soon as the war ended, he just switched it over and started putting the communists into that category, and claiming that the communists were responsible for sending opium into places like Western Europe and the United States in order to try and undermine them. And um, especially after 1949, he really liked to blame communist China in particular for all of this. Even though virtually all of those claims about China were the opposite. They were the most puritanical anti... The communists were super puritanical anti... They were the ultimate drug warriors in most cases. In fact... Um, Anslinger's claims about the communist Chinese being behind opium, they were based on cherry-picked statements made from some of his agents in other countries who basically said what he wanted to hear. And actually, some of his agents were telling him the facts, the truth, which was, no, actually, the communists aren't really doing this at all. Um, and, and in fact, British authorities in places like Hong Kong were saying the same thing, like, no, it's not the Chai Coms behind this. In reality, it wasn't the Chinese communists it was the Chinese nationalists, Chiang Kai-shek's guys, the right-wingers, our guys in Asia, who were the ones most responsible at the time for the opium trade. And whether Anslinger personally knew this or not, you can't really prove. Did he know that, but just it's expedient to blame it on the chai Or is it just a matter of, you know, confirmation bias, the agents who tell him what he wants to hear, he believes, and the agents who tell him the truth... He just ignores or brushes off. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. But um, anyway, during World War II, 
Anslinger himself consulted a bit with the Office of Strategic Services. He had been friends with Bill Donovan going back to the 1920s, when Donovan was just a, a lawyer in Buffalo. While Bill Donovan, of course, the guy then brought in to set up the OSS in World War II. And three of Anslinger's top veteran agents were transferred to the OSS during the war years. They were kind of still FBN agents, but then they were also commissioned in the OSS. The OSS gave ranks like the military, and these guys were commissioned as like officers in the OSS. And they were involved in training activities, but they also um, became involved in field operations. And the most interesting of the narcotics agents who worked with the OSS during World War II, who also later worked with the CIA quite a bit, was an agent named George H. White. And this guy, I think, deserves a movie made about him. Because it's just such a bizarre story, and I can only give you a little bit of it here. But George White, he's this giant, you know, large, heavy, by all accounts, super eccentric guy. He's known for breaking the rules, doing things his way, being a lone wolf. He never wanted a partner. In some ways, he's kind of the classic, like, action movie cop or spy hero. He's, I work alone. I do things my way. I make my own rules. Sorry, chief. I don't do things by the book. And like those cliched heroes, he also got things done. Now, whether those were good things is a very different question, but he was effective. Let's, let's give him that. Anslinger was sometimes annoyed with White for being such a not-by-the-book sort of a guy. Anslinger was more of a Dudley Do-Right type, and yet he kept White around and often gave him important jobs because White got her done. He must have read David Allen's book. White had already been a top narcotics agent for a while before World War II, and then, like I said, he goes over to OSS during the war years and was commissioned as a lieutenant, uh, lieutenant colonel in the OSS. And among White's wartime exploits was a mission in India in which he himself killed a Japanese spy by strangling him to death with his bare hands. And George White supposedly kept photos in his home for the rest of his life of that guy and also of two other men he had personally killed during his career as well. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I've not seen the photos. And... Yeah, yeah, and the, and the, and the, the sources I, I found about this didn't specify, right? Were they sort of like crime scene type photos, or I don't know, I don't know. But obviously a great guy, right? Obviously a case of a, of a psychopath or sociopath who finds out that you can really get paid and protected to do some really cool stuff if you go to work for the state. That's right. Obviously, he was very prone to violence and breaking rules and laws. And even though he was a staunch drug warrior himself, he actually, on multiple occasions, took drugs himself just for experimental purposes. Just to, you got to know what the perps are going through, right? White himself once wrote this about his renegade style and his career. These are his words. I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? End quote. 
This is one of Anslinger's star agents. After World War II, when the CIA eventually replaced the OSS in 1947, several Federal Bureau of Narcotics agents, including George White, of course, continued to do work for the CIA. In fact, White was even officially on the CIA's payroll as a consultant for a number of years in the late 40s and in the 50s. And one thing that White and several other FBN agents who were working with the CIA in the early cold years were involved with were all those MKUltra-type mind-control drug experiments on unwitting human subjects. Among many other things he was involved with, George White was the main guy on something called Operation Midnight Climax, which is exactly what it sounds like in a way. Some of you may have heard of this. This was one of the MKUltra experiments where the CIA, most of the time through Anslinger, or sorry, through um, George White, the CIA recruits prostitutes. The prostitutes then go out and solicit Johns. They then bring them back to a prepared CIA safe house for sex, of course. But also, during the festivities, the John is given, unknowingly, a huge dose of LSD. On the other side of a one-way mirror is an agent, usually white. Not a white person, although that too, but George White who is watching and recording with audio, and also, I believe, film, but I'm less sure about that, everything that happens, including the sex, but also whatever bizarre things happen on the LSD, and of course, it's all in the name of science. We've got to know if this can be an effective truth serum against the commies or not, and this is clearly the only way to do it. Now, we don't know for sure the details of exactly how much of all this Anslinger himself personally knew, you know, about the MKUltra stuff, but there's every reason to believe he could not have been entirely ignorant of these projects. He may not have known all the details, but he knew stuff. No way he didn't. And we don't know for sure, in part because when this stuff started to come out in the late 70s, of course, the CIA went on a document destruction binge, and the vast majority of the documents related to MKUltra and all sorts of other horrible things they were doing were destroyed. So all the, terrible, the, all the terrible stuff we know for certain the CIA was doing from the late 40s through the, the early 70s, that is absolutely the tip of the iceberg. There's, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's the limited hangout that resulted from stuff that they accidentally didn't toss into the incinerator where they tossed most of it. Now, like I said before, Anslinger was a staunch, true-believing cold warrior. And like all those sorts of people, he was sometimes willing to bend his own principles a bit in the pursuit of the higher good of resisting communism. So, for example, in his book, The Murderers, Anslinger claimed that in the 50s, he found out that there was a top member of Congress, whose name he did not reveal, who had become a raging opium addict. And Anslinger basically made a deal with this person in order to avoid scandal, because it would just damage the country too much if a top member of Congress was revealed to be an opium addict. So for the greater good. The deal was this. If this person would not get his drugs from street pushers, which raised the possibility of a scandal of it getting revealed to the public and the press, if this guy would stay away from street dealers, Anslinger would have his personal pharmacist at the Narcotics Bureau supply this man with good, clean opium that you could trust. 
Now, who was this mystery person? There is a, as far as I'm concerned, pretty conclusive mountain of evidence. It was Joseph McCarthy. So Anslinger had his personal pharmacist supplying Joseph McCarthy with good pure opium because we don't want to damage America's prestige in the Cold War. Yeah, this is who we're dealing with. In the 50s, for the first time, Anslinger was able to start getting massive budget increases. So, for example, in 1949, his budget was still only running about one and a half um, million dollars. But by 1956, just seven years later, he'd more than doubled it. He'd gotten it up to about 3.7 million. Turns out these fiscally conservative congressmen of the 1950s could be super generous when it comes to things like the war on drugs. Yeah, I mean, look, everyone knows, like, you don't want to throw a few extra bucks at the school lunch program, because that's just evil. But, uh, you know, locking up the reefer crowd, that's worth it. So, like I said, um, Anslinger was the first major U.S. government official to really start speaking out against the, uh, the mafia and other organized crime syndicates in a major way, including testimony to the Kefauver Committee in the Senate in the early 50s and the McClellan uh, Committee in the late 50s. And um, during the 1950s, Anslinger was, of course, the key figure behind the 1951 Boggs Act and the 1956 Federal Narcotics Control Act, both of which, you know, strengthened further the penalties for drug offenses and had mandatory minimums and all that. And also, by the way, each of these two laws then allowed Anslinger to get yet more budget increases and manpower increases and resource increases for his bureau because, hey, we got these stronger laws now that we have to go enforce. So give me more money. Anslinger was surprised when, in 1961, the young incoming uh, President JFK actually reappointed him. He just assumed, you know, it's a new generation and all that, right? Bringing in the best and brightest. But it's one of the ones Kennedy kept around. Now, despite partisan differences, Anslinger actually seems to have liked the Kennedy brothers, especially Bobby, and the reason was because they had been tough against the mafia back in the Senate in the late 50s with the McClellan Committee. Really, um, the Kennedys were the stars of that. Bobby, in particular, was kind of the lead attorney for the McClellan Committee. So Anslinger liked the Kennedys because they were tough on the mob. But um, in 1962, Anslinger turned 70, and that was, I don't know if it still is, but it was at the time, the mandatory retirement age for a federal civil servant. So Anslinger stepped down and was replaced by a man named Henry Giordano, who had been, for many years, Anslinger's deputy and right-hand man, and who pretty much continued Anslinger's entire approach to the war on drugs with virtually no real change. Anslinger was the U.S. representative to the United Nations Narcotics Commission for two years after he left the Narcotics Bureau, and then he retired for good. Um, By the early 70s, he was having lots of health problems, and he died of uh, heart failure, in 1975 at the age of 83. Now, other than a brief temporary blip in the kind of mid to late 70s and, you know, some of the stuff now with states legalizing marijuana and that sort of thing, for the most part, looking at the time ever since Anslinger's career, what you see is that Anslinger's basic approach to drugs has remained the paradigm for the U.S. government ever since. And the only modifications for the most part have just been amping it up even more. 
So the approach, what is it? Well, we all kind of know, right? It's criminalization and prosecution, not treatment of people who do have serious addiction problems. Or, you know, little treatment as an afterthought or a token. It involves exaggerating dangers and ignoring any countervailing evidence, no matter how much of it there is, whenever you need to, for political purposes. It involves getting your budget and power increased from year to year by any means necessary, including demonizing whoever you have to demonize, including marginalized groups at home and foreigners abroad. And you have to walk a fine line, and Anslinger was skillful at it. You have to walk a fine line, and the line is this. You have to tell Congress, yes, our approach is the right one. We don't need to change our overall strategy. All we need is more money and power. The only reason it's not working yet, right? Because you don't want to say, oh, my God, it's not working. Look at all this crime. Because then they go, oh, what, what have you been doing with all this money all these years? So you, have to, you always have to walk that line, right? And Anslinger set the tone. And you have to keep interest groups on your side. And that includes both do-gooder, crusader-type groups that want to ban the drugs for moralistic reasons. It also includes other groups who may have more kind of cynical economic motives, like, say, the tobacco companies, the alcohol companies, the pharmaceutical companies, and all that. And you have to keep the mainstream media always on your side so that most people don't hear alternative perspectives on these things. Anslinger, I think, was the most dangerous kind of crusading ideologue. He was the kind who's also very skillful at practical politics and is willing to compromise his own views occasionally when it serves his purposes. It's the most dangerous kind of ideologue. It's the effective kind. Like I said before, he's by no means the only person responsible for the war on drugs, but he bears more responsibility for it than any other single individual in the 20th century American history pantheon, as far as I can tell. And his career resulted in the ruining of countless lives and to the massive reduction of virtually everybody's freedom in the U.S., and in the, the freedoms and happiness and safety of many people in many countries around the world because of the effects of the war on drugs. And the consequences are with us to this day. I mean, you know, just, just look at what Mexico has been dealing with as a direct side, side effect of the war on drugs for a long time now, to say nothing of dozens of other countries. So anyway, for all those reasons, I don't have any real hesitations in giving Anslinger a star in the fabled DHP Villains Hall of Shame. Thank you. All right, so we're going to open it up for questions now. If you do um, have a question for CJ on this one, um, just come on up to the mic so we can get it in, in the recording and all that. Okay. Oh, I was uh, wondering about the bath salts and stuff, the synthetic marijuana and the parallels to what he was saying marijuana was making people do. Is mm -hmm. there anything to that? Um, all I can say is that that is a really good question, and I've not really dug into that, so I don't have an educated opinion. Uh, it's certainly based on how often in the past we know 
that Anslinger and you know his successors later on have ridiculously exaggerated the dangers of a particular drug. You know, it's certainly possible, even likely, that they're doing it again there. Um, I just have not looked into it and don't really know of any decisive evidence one way or the other. You know, it is possible that every now and then there might actually be a drug that is really freaking dangerous. And the problem is, if they're acting like, you know, even the most mild drugs are these horrible things, then it's a boy who cried wolf scenario where if there actually is a really dangerous one and they tell you, oh, don't take this, it's real dangerous, you're like, yeah, right. You said that about the last five drugs, and I've taken all those now, and they're fine. So, you know, and that's one of those things that setting aside politics and law enforcement, like, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of never lie to your children. And so, for example, if you tell your kids, oh, this, this one, you know, mild drug over here is like super dangerous and it'll make you a homicidal maniac, well, sooner or later, one way or another, your kids are going to figure out you're full of shit. And then they'll never, they'll never, you've lost your credibility. They'll never believe you again. And when you do warn some of them, warn them about something that actually is really dangerous in the future, they're going to be like, yeah, right. I'm going to go do that right away. So, yeah, something to be careful about. Anyone else? In the buildup to the war on drugs, when he is initially testifying to Congress and, and telling them, oh, marijuana is going to make all this stuff happen, and as things went along, um, I know that they pretty much just laid down and took it, but over some time, was there anybody that took a look at the results or lack of results that said, hey, you know, maybe you're full of bunk here? And you know, Was there anybody that even questioned it, like a Ron Paul type? Oh, and one other thing, you mentioned that he... Uh, talked about how marijuana makes you violent. He also testified during the Red Scare that the commies wanted people to do marijuana because it turns them into pacifists. Right, right, so, yeah. So he, he went with both directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, would, yeah. he would opportunistically manipulate things. There, you can find him on the record in various points. Um, sometimes he'll say marijuana, uh, the, the whole gateway drug idea, in some ways he's one of the people who sort of devised that. He didn't use the term gateway drug, though, as far as I know. But you can find him on the record. When it suits his purposes, he endorses the gateway drug theory that it leads to harder drugs. And then when it's not convenient, he says the opposite. He says marijuana doesn't do that. Um, so, for example, if he's saying marijuana is the most dangerous drug around, then how can it be a gateway drug to more dangerous drugs, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. He, that's what I was saying. He was an ideologue, but he was a, a, a pragmatic ideologue. So it's, like, super dangerous. But... Um, on the, the overall question of did anyone push back, uh, in the, the original debates over the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, as far as I was able to tell, no member of Congress really did, um, if that's the question. There was the one guy from the AMA who pushed back in the ha- in, during the House testimonies, and then they just you know piled on him, and, uh, and then no, nobody testified against Anslinger's arguments in the Senate hearings. Now, in later years, I mentioned the, the LaGuardia Commission, that raise like pretty decisive evidence as far as I'm concerned. And then there was another one um, that I didn't mention, I think in like maybe the late 50s, that was conducted by the AMA that came to very similar conclusions as the LaGuardia Commission that like, no, actually marijuana is not that dangerous and most of what Anslinger and the Federal Narcotics Bureau has been saying is BS. Um, but like the LaGuardia report, it just kind of got nowhere. You know, the media mostly blacked it out and Anslinger just attacked it and everyone who was associated with it. And, you know, so, yeah. There's, a, there's that one congressman, John Coffey, who, who tried to do something for a little while, but that was after the act had already been on the books for a while. Yep. I, I just want to kind of follow up on what Mike said, that there is definitely this historical pattern of when you, you know, ban something that, you know, 
if I'm smuggling alcohol across the Great Lakes from Canada during Prohibition, I can only fit so much in my you know boat. I'm going to bring liquor. Hmm. I'm going to bring beer because I can get more bang for my buck. So yep. yeah, it's the fact that things are you know I know next to nothing about synthetic cannabinoids, but what I've heard just anecdotally is a lot of the opiate overdose deaths are fentanyl related, which is wicked potent. You know, it's dosed yeah. in micrograms, not milligrams, when it's actually used for pain management. Um, you know, yeah. the, the first time someone slaps on a fentanyl patch for legitimate pain, you know, it's like they've stopped breathing if it wasn't dosed appropriately. You know, and so, yeah, things are more potent because people are trying to make money in a system where if they get caught with any, they're going to get in big trouble. So I mean, as well get yeah. the wicked strongest stuff they can to pass it on to their customers. and Right, yeah. Yeah, that's that's something um, uh, called the Iron Law of Prohibition. And as far as I know, it was the the economist Mark Thornton who, who first really kind of put that together. He's been on my show a while back, by the way. Um, and, yeah, the idea is that when something is illegal, now you have incentives to make it as compact and you know, because you're going to be smuggling it and whatever. You want to make it as small and yet as potent so you get the bang for the buck and all that as possible. So, yeah, when, when alcohol is legal, people mostly drink wine and beer. When alcohol is illegal, people mostly drink hard liquor. And then when alcohol gets re-legalized in the 30s, it shifts back and, and beer and alcohol again, uh, beer and uh, wine again predominate. And, yeah, same thing, right? The longer the war on drugs goes on, the more the drugs tend to get, you know, more and more powerful and, and actually dangerous in some cases at least. And yeah, there's economic incentives, and um, you know, then, then there's all the other other things at play, uh, all kinds of, of screwed up incentives. Like for example, if you treat a whole bunch of different drugs of varying levels of danger as being equally bad when it comes to prosecution, it's like, well, if I'm going to face 50 years in jail, whether I'm you know carrying around a bag of weed or like some ridiculously strong synthetic mega opiate that's in like some future sci-fi movie, why not carry around the super nuclear powerful stuff? I'm facing the same potential punishment either way if I get busted. Why not go for the good stuff? You know, this is what you, what you find when they do mandatory minimums is like people will sometimes, you know, in the course of a robbery, commit a murder that maybe they otherwise wouldn't have committed because they're like, well... I'm going to get, you know, this is my third strike. I'm, I'm going to get uh, life whether I just do a robbery or whether I do a robbery and a murder. So, you know, if, it, if it's a little bit convenient to kill someone, I might as well. So, anyone else? Um, this is part just a picky historical detail, but in part a question on your narrative after the war. Um, my understanding from Alfred McCoy... Mm-hmm. And Daniel Sheehan is that Luciano went back to Italy before Anzio, and he had three parts to his deal. First, he was supposed to help prepare the way for the Allied invasion. Second, he was supposed to help fight communists on the docks Mm -hmm. in the United States. And third, he was supposed to help open the opium trade from um, Asia through Marseille to Cuba to the U.S., Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're you're absolutely right about about the the details of his deal. Yeah, I didn't uh, I, I didn't fully no, elaborate I'm, that. I'm not, I'm not um, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I I may have been off the timing of his release by a year. Okay, but the, yeah. but I think your narrative and Alfred McCoy's. I'm not. I don't want to put words in Alfred McCoy's mouth, but I'm going to. And Daniel Sheehan. But it seems that the 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 depth of the relationship between Donovan and the Dulles brothers and the trade through Cuba 
and the you know, the funding of the wars against communism mm-hmm. in East Asia, Anslinger could not have been unaware of that and could not have been part of that. I mean, it would be impossible. Oh. It was such a deep, deeply entrenched policy in all the covert American institutions that Anslinger absolutely. had to know and had to participate. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you and uh, with, with uh, Alfred McCoy, who has also been on my show a while back, by the way. Not, not, mostly not to talk about this stuff, but some other stuff. But um, yeah, uh, I've, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, Alfred McCoy's work and, and all that. Um, so yeah, I, I would totally agree with you in, in the sense that it seems unlikely that Anslinger would have been genuinely ignorant that there was U.S. intelligence, at the very least, facilitating you know, if not actively like running the drugs, at the very least kind of in various ways facilitating it and, and protecting certain people. Um, yeah, what, what I just don't know and I haven't seen, and probably it doesn't exist, I haven't seen sort of like the, the smoking gun evidence of like documents that specify exactly what Anslinger knew and when he knew it, that kind of thing. And probably such a thing, if it ever existed, has long since been destroyed. But yeah, yeah. No, I, I would agree with you that my suspicions are there, there's no way. I mean, even just looking at, at his longstanding close friendship and collaboration with William Donovan, just based on that alone, um, let alone the fact that several of his star agents are working for the OSS and the CIA, yeah, no, no, I would agree with you that there's ever, you know, if I had to put money on it, I'm certain he knew something. You know, how much he knew, how much detail he knew about intelligence, uh, drug run, being involved with drug running. It's just hard to say. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, CJ. That was awesome. Appreciate it. It's, uh, it's always good to have you back here, man. We're, we're glad you keep coming. Thanks for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. If you like what you heard, there are many ways you can help the show. One of the most important, of course, is to spread the word about the show to others that you think might appreciate it to help grow the audience. Another huge way is to help out the show financially in some way. There are many ways you can do this. You can make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Or one of the best ways is to sign up to make a recurring contribution to the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon or Subscribestar. If you sign up for just $5 per month via either Patreon or Subscribestar, you'll get access to exclusive bonus Dangerous History podcast episodes that are available nowhere else. And you'll also get access to vintage DHP episodes, which are the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to GenPop, the general population. You will also get ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes as they come out. And lastly, for that same contribution, you will also have the option to join the private Facebook group, the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. Another great way you can help out the show at no additional cost to you is to do your Amazon shopping through any of my Amazon affiliate links that are found on my website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com. And if you go through those affiliate links to get to Amazon, anything you purchase will at no additional cost to you, give me a small commission. This is another thing that helps me with things like keeping the lights on for the Dangerous History Podcast, purchasing research materials for upcoming episodes, and so forth. I also have an Amazon wish list full of books and things for future research projects, and so another way you can help me out is buy me something off of that. That's really cool. So anyway, I hope you'll consider contributing or supporting to the show in one way or another to help me 
keep this thing going and keep this thing constantly growing and improving. This has been another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast, as always, doing my utmost to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. <laughs>